This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, April the 8th, 2012. Good to have you aboard. Hope you'll stay with me for the full uh, two hours. Have a good show for you. Uh, First of all, of course, I wish a happy Easter to my uh, Catholic and Protestant listeners. Next week, I'll be wishing a happy Easter all over again to my uh, Orthodox uh, listeners and family. Uh, Don't ask me why there are two Easters. I haven't quite figured it out yet. Just when I think I I understand, then somebody throws a curve into the mix and I'm confused again. Uh, All I know is that I get two Easter Sunday meals out of the deal, so oh, hey, that can't be a bad thing, right? Uh, we will be talking about Easter in just a few, a few moments. Uh, Dr. Andrew Silverman is a doctor with a background in physiology. He studied a particular uh, artifact or a relic that is really at the center of the Easter story, at least the, the, the center of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ's story. That is the Shroud of Turin, which many Christians believe to be the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ. One such is my guest, Dr. Andrew Silverman, uh, who uh, has come prepared with uh, just a mountain of scientific evidence uh, that um, suggests it is an authentic uh, relic. It is the burial cloth of Christ that actually bears... Or, or, or contains evidence of a resurrection event. He'll explain in just a few moments. Coming up after midnight, uh, Peter Economides, who is a global brand strategist, one of the greats. In fact, he's caused quite a, uh, a stir with his lectures about rebranding Greece through the social media. They've, re- they've really gone viral. He'll join us uh, after midnight live from Athens. Uh, Peter Economides, if you don't know, was with TBWA Worldwide, one of the... Uh, those of you who, who uh, watch Mad Men and are sort of familiar with the uh, the advertising uh, agency uh, business, TBWA is one of the biggest. Uh, I mean, there's McCann Erickson and then there's TBWA. Peter Economides was with TBWA in the late 90s. Steve Jobs had just returned to Apple. The founder had just returned to his old company to find it in ruins. No one was buying those big clunky gray computers. This was before iPads and... and, uh, and um, iPhones and iTunes and well, all that stuff. Uh, and so Peter Economides was hired 
to turn the company around uh, by rebranding it. And he launched, he rolled out a pretty successful uh, campaign. You may recall it was called Think Different. And we'll play it for you a little bit later. Now Peter Economides wants to take uh, those same skills, expertise, ingenuity, creativity that he has and apply it to Greece and rebrand Greece. And Lord knows Greece could, could, could stand a, an image boost right now. We'll uh, take a quick time out when we come back. The Light of the Shroud of Turin. Stay with us. We may have a sort of silent witness here that, in effect, was a witness to those events. And if we could be clever enough to study those, to unpack what's there, then we may have a real opportunity where science and religion can come together most profoundly at that point. Why is the Shroud significant? From a point of science, the Shroud of Turin can never be proven absolutely to be the Shroud of Jesus. It can't. I often wonder, okay, if the Shroud is authentic, then it must have a purpose, must have a plan. There must be a reason for it to be here. And welcome back. As promised, we are about to delve into one of my favorite topics, and what better time to discuss the most important relic in the Christian world than at Easter. Dr. Andrew Silverman is a medical doctor with a background in physiology and has been interested from an early age in the nature of what we are as human beings and what our potential is. He's always been fascinated to know how the image on the Turin Shroud could have formed being mindful of, of the fact that it cannot be replicated even with 21st century technology. In May 2010, he presented a paper on the Turin Shroud at a conference at the Atomic Physics Research Center in Frascati, Italy, and he presented two more papers at the University of Turin in Poland in May 2011. Dr. Andrew Silverman, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you very much. Yes, I'm fine, thanks. Yes, and you? Very well. How did yes. you get involved in uh, investigating the, the Shroud of Turin? Well, you know, um, I first became familiar with the with the shroud uh, when I was just in my in my teenage years. When I I saw a, a friend of mine had a a, a full length uh, photographic reproduction of it, and um, even back then I was you know, astonished by how did this the question of how did this image get there onto the cloth. Um, and I saw a, a, a program that was that was made for uh, and shown in British television about this, and um, it, it seemed that that nobody could account for how it could have been made by human hand, so to speak. It, it couldn't have been made by an artist. The image doesn't consist of paint, uh, and there are certain unique characteristics of the image, which. Uh, seem to be impossible to to reproduce even uh, even using 21st century technology so it's I'm always having a sort of uh, scientific mind interested in 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 the mysteries and how to try and solve them through through reason and through empirical evidence you see we should take a few moments and actually uh, describe or explain what the shroud of turn is for those who don't know this is a linen cloth bearing the image of a man who appears to have suffered physical trauma in in the manner consistent with the crucifixion and uh, the actual dimensions what it is it's about 14 feet by three and a half feet correct 
Yes, it, it is about that. And um, the the thing is, on the on this cloth, there are several kinds of markings. There are some scorches where the cloth had been involved in a caught in a fire. There's some water stains there from where uh, people had tried to put it out. There's some red marks on it that look like blood stains and have been shown chemically and forensically to actually be human blood stains. And then there's this faint image of a of a man, as you say, which is uh, consistent with the with the image that we would expect of a man who had been whipped, t- tortured, and crucified. And specifically, uh, there's evidence that this man had had a, a cap of, of sharp objects like thorns that had been placed on his head, had been pierced in the side, had been uh, crucified actually not as the, the medieval artists used to show it through the hands, but actually through the wrists. And this is interesting because it was only found relatively recently, within the past 100 years or so, that in fact crucifixion would have had to have been through the through the wrists and not through the hands because the the hands wouldn't have been able to support the weight of a human body and yet if you look at all medieval art it always shows the nails going through the hands and and yet the the Turin shroud image shows the nails have have been through the wrists and as much as that's where the the blood is is issuing from and I mean the 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 nature of the of the actual image on there, sort of chemically and and physically. Um, if it had been if it had been painted, then the thing about paint is that it actually soak would soak into the cloth. And this is the image is less than a thousandth of a millimeter in in thickness and doesn't consist of anything that's been added to the cloth but consists of an actual change in the in the chemical structure of the of the cellulose in the cloth itself and and the other thing that's interesting is if uh, if you or I were, were standing in the chapel of the uh the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin, looking, and, and it was on public display, and we were to look at this, the, the markings are very faint. You wouldn't probably be able to make out much detail with the human eye, and so it wasn't really until almost the 20th century that, thanks to a, a photographer uh, who took a photographic image of this, that we were actually able to see a lot of the detail. Yes, that's absolutely right. In fact, if you look very close up to the cloth, you can't actually make out the image at all. You have to step back quite a distance from it, which makes it even more difficult to imagine how this sort of um, alleged artist could have could have made it. Um, and yes, the thing is that um, once in 1898, when Secunda Pierre did make the take a photograph of it, the story goes that he nearly he nearly dropped his photographic plate in shock when he saw that the photo photographic negative image of the shroud is actually a positive with with hugely detailed information that then becomes visible and which wasn't known until until then and up until that point as you say it was just thought to be just a a very faint marking on the on the cloth that seemed to be uh, in the in the shape of a man 
So um, that's one. So there are several unique characteristics of this image. One is the uh, superficial nature of it, in as much as it's only on the very surface fibrils of the cloth. So it's, um, as I say, less than a thousandth of a millimeter in thickness. Then you've got this photographic negative property. Uh, which was discovered by Secunda Pierre in, in 1898. And then about um, 80 years after that, uh, uh, Dr. John Jackson, who was using some uh, equipment that had been used from the, had been made for the NASA space program, and using that to analyze the, the shroud image, had a, there was another sort of eureka moment there, if you like, in the, in shroud research, because he put the image through a machine called a, a VP8 image intensifier, which what it does, it was, this was used for uh, mapping uh, topography of, of lunar landscapes and so on. And it looks for distance coding in, the, in any image. And if you put an ordinary photograph, like a portrait of someone in a VP8, you get a random set of, of peaks and troughs. But if you put a, a photograph of the Turin Shroud in the, in the VP8, what you get is that the, this face comes out at you in relief, in three-dimensional information contained within the, the image. So this is this is unique this this image on the cloth compared with any other image that that we that we know about and it led some of the researchers from that 1978 team of of scientists who went to to Turin Italy in the in the 1970s to to conclude that the only consistent way they could imagine how this image could have got on the cloth was by a short intense burst of radiant energy which had to have actually come from the dead body of the man that the shroud wrapped. And having studied the the image forensically, as I say, this is the, the body of a man who had been who had been whipped. He had been uh, had a had carried a heavy object on uh, the back of his shoulders. He'd had a set of, of sharp objects, like a, a cap of thorns placed upon his head. He'd been crucified through the wrists and the feet, and he'd been pierced through the side. Now, the forensic people looking at this cloth would be able to to say, if you like, in, in a, if it was in a court of law, beyond reasonable doubt, that the shroud once held the body of a man who had been tortured and killed in that way. So... Either someone cruelly sort of tortured someone in the way that, that Jesus is supposed to have been, have been killed and then wrapped him in a cloth, and then we still have to account for how the image formed when we can't make an image like that, even with 21st century technology, or this was the burial cloth of Jesus of Nazareth himself, and then, you know, we still have to try and understand how did the image get there? Uh, exactly. And, and uh, the other interesting thing here is that um, if this was, in fact, a forgery and a, or a medieval hoax, because many people say, well, this was a medieval hoax. Well, if it was, for what intended audience? Because we wouldn't have been able to appreciate this hoax, obviously, until well into the 20th century. Yes, indeed. I mean, that, that's, that's a very good point. Why did they 
bother to and how did they know about distance coded information photographic negative properties and how did they when you can't even they couldn't have even ch checked their work because you can't even see it from close up in its in its its natural form let alone the what it's going to look like once you take a photographic negative of it and of course there, there's one thing that in talking about the shroud that one always has to to address and uh, the the elephant in the room is is of course the uh, the carbon dating now um for for those who don't know in uh, 1988 a, a team of of scientists took a uh, one fragment of the of the cloth from a corner of the cloth which was distributed amongst three laboratories and was subjected to to carbon dating now I was a I was a student at the time that the the carbon dating report was was published, uh, and I was studying a uh, science. I was studying physiology as part of my medical degree. Was that at Oxford? Uh, no, it oh. wasn't. It was it was up in Scotland, and um, so. Um, I was I used to read Nature um, as it as it came out each week, and um, so I, I I read the the this article about the report about the carbon dating, and I was looking at the one thing that caught my eye was a box in the corner where the actual statistics were were uh, were put forward, or at least some of them were. And now, if you if you actually look at that, what it implies is that if you do a uh, what's called a ninety five percent confidence test on the on the data, that it implies that using the the, the quoted errors of the three different laboratories, that the you can test this is what scientists we just, we call it testing the hypothesis that all the three samples that were tested by the the three different labs from a one tiny fragment only that they all had the same age and you would refute that that hypothesis uh, within the sort of uh, under there's reasonable grounds to suggest that that actually they don't and you see this is where um some some great research by a, a, a couple in the in the states called Benford and Marino comes in, that they noticed that um, looking at some areas of the cloth that were near where the carbon dating sample was taken from, that they noticed a discrepancy that it actually looked like there were two different types of cloth that were woven in together and there's a picture that if you look at something called the quad mosaic picture of the of the shroud you see that that corner which is where the carbon dating was taken from uh, comes out in a different color from all the rest and so they put forward the hypothesis that that perhaps the area that was sampled and, and and you know presumably in, in good faith by the by the the scientists involved that this i'm not suggesting that there was any any kind of conspiracy here they just tested the samples that they were they were given and came up with accurate carbon dates for those samples but those samples were not representative of the rest of the cloth now Benford and Marino put forward this theory and one of the original uh, researchers from the STIRP team, that's the team that in 1978, a team of various people who, who were, sent to, were sent to Turin um, to, to investigate the shroud. And most of them thought, most of these scientists thought, well, we'll just go there, we'll find the brush strokes, we'll find you know, that it was a painting and then we'll get a free, a free holiday to Italy out of it. And they, without exception, 
none of them, none of those scientists, um, when they uh, concluded their their studies, none of them thought that it had been forged. None of them could see how a painter or an artist could possibly have made it. But one of these researchers was a chemist by the name of Raymond Rogers from uh, Los Alamos uh, National Laboratories in in the States. And and he was convinced that this couldn't have been made by the image. He couldn't see how it could have been made by human hand. And yet, when the carbon dating report was published, he said, okay, fair enough. I can't see how it could have been, how it could have been made. But if it was, I have to accept what science, scientific evidence suggests. And if that suggests it's medieval, then medieval it is. And so he changed his, his mind again on, on that. Uh, but then when, so when he heard what Benford and Marino was saying, he was, as a scientist, he found it annoying because he thought these were people who just wanted to, um, you know, to, to change the facts to fit what they believed. And he said, right, he, he, when he heard what they were saying, he said, I'm going to prove them wrong in five minutes because I've got some samples from near where the carbon dating was taken and I've got access to samples that are from other parts of the, the shroud and I'm going to prove that the sample was representative of the rest of the shroud. And you know what? Um, he realized he said he went on um, on the record it was interviewed on on video afterwards uh, before he died to say he he set out to prove them wrong and he ended up proving them right and he uh, had a he wrote a paper that was that was published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal called thermochemica acta which showed the evidence chemically how the the area where the carbon dating was taken from is not representative of the rest of the cloth it is a damaged area that had been had been rewoven by the by the nuns to repair the damage and so extraneous material had had made its way into the into the cloth let me just uh, back up a minute so the the original or the 1988 a carbon dating test concluded that the shroud material dated to somewhere between 1260 and 390 AD. However, yes. how, uh, however, uh, it has now uh, uh, been suggested, and there is some considerable evidence to back this up, that the sample uh, of the, the where the fiber was taken came from a, a patch, a piece of linen that was added in uh, by the nuns, perhaps to repair damage from a fire, which we know occurred, and it did damage the uh, the shroud. There are scorch marks. This was um, probably the sample taken from from a piece of fabric that was woven sometime in that Middle Age period. Well, um, it was. Um, it's. It's. What is thought is that it's actually a part where relic hunters had cut bits off, so to speak. It had been damaged from people handling it ah, and people taking bits off, and okay. it wasn't quite a patch. It had been rewoven to, to because um, you know it, it wasn't officially allowed that 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 people were were given given relics and given bits of it. So it had to be repaired to make it look like nothing had nothing had happened to it. You see. Let me and just remind. A, uh, let me just remind listeners. Dr. Andrew Silverman on the uh, the line uh, discussing the light of the shroud uh, here on AM seven forty and the Conspiracy Show. Uh, Dr. Silverman, uh, the. Um, the injuries, they're consistent. The, um, I mean, whoever did this, if it, let's assume for a moment that it was a hoax, and I, I don't, I, I don't uh, believe that it was a hoax, but if it was, the, the person who orchestrated this hoax would have had to have an incredible knowledge 
of anatomy physiology. You, you, you just mentioned the fact that uh, uh, the shroud um, illustrates that crucifixion would have had to have been, uh, the, the victim would have had to have been spiked through the wrists. And we know this because the thumb on the image in the shroud, the thumbs are curled under the, the hand, which is what would happen when you agitate that particular nerve when the, when, when, when the, uh, the, the nail or the spike would go through the wrist. Yes, the but, median nerve, and also the blood stain uh, is actually is actually coming from the wrist. So forensically, what it means is that to get that pattern of of blood stains and those marks on the cloth, that a, a forger would have had to have taken someone and actually tortured them and physically crucified a, a, a living person and you know and killed them, and and then wrapped them in the shroud, but then. It still leaves the question of how did they get the image of this of this corpse to form on the shroud? Right, and we'll come to that. We'll take a time out. We'll come to that, and that's when we get to uh, obviously the name of the website and your presentation, Light of the Shroud. We're going to focus on the light when we come back. Dr. Andrew Silverman, my guest here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Is it possible? that the shroud presents an opportunity for 21st century people across the world to literally see the resurrected Christ through photography, to see it for themselves, and in a sense, in a proverbial way, to place our hands into his nail wounds and be not faithless but believe. Welcome back. Dr. Andrew Silverman has concluded that the image on the Shroud of Turin seems to have been formed by a short, intense burst of radiant energy brighter than the sun. All right. So, in, indeed, how did that image get on that, uh, that piece of uh, linen cloth, uh, Dr. Andrew Silverman? Yes. Well, um, I just wanted to say uh, a little bit of, of background to this to this notion of the of the short, intense burst of radiant energy. I'm not sure so if some of your listeners might be aware of um, some work that was done at uh, the ENEA, which is an atomic energy research center uh, in in Frascati, Italy. And this is research that's been done using using ultraviolet lasers, uh, research led uh, partly by uh, um, a, a scientist uh, called Dr. Paolo Di Lazzaro there in, in Italy. And what he has found is that he can make a, a similar change to the surface fibrils of uh, of, a, of a linen cloth using a very short pulse high intensity um, ultraviolet laser that is, is then produces only the surface changes on the cloth and this is this is interesting because if the, we there is as we see on the the Turin shroud image there's a superficial character of it that it's only on the surface fibrils there's the photographic negative properties and then there's the distance coded information so you see if the the light had been reflected as in an ordinary photograph from the from the body as people claim who who say it was forged by some kind of camera obscura process or whatever then you don't get that that distance coding but you do if the light is actually emanating from the body itself now 
here we come to um, to, to the question of going a bit deeper into the, the forensic evidence on the shroud and in particular uh, some work that was done by uh, a researcher uh, in, in Boston, uh, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie. Now, he has done studies of the of the blood stains on the cloth, and he has found that that they that the blood stains are consistent with a, a simple contact process that the the, the shroud once wrapped a, a dead body, okay. But of course, the the image isn't consistent with a contact process because if the cloth had been wrapped around the body at the time that the image formed, then when you straighten the cloth out and put it flat, you would see a very distorted image. Okay, you would see the 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 face, for example, would be would be much wider. Right now, what right. some experiments that Dr. Lavoie did with um, with wrapping, um, putting putting stains on people's faces and uh, liquid on people's faces and wrapping things around to see where the stains form. And if you look at the at the at the shroud uh, closely, you can see that there seem to be some blood stains in and around the hair. In fact, some of the blood stains are even to further out than the hair. Some seem to be in the hair, some between the hair and the face. And what Lavoie found is that if you had blood on the face and the cloth wrapped around it, and then the, the cloth was straightened, was made flat, then the, the, the stains from the face would appear superimposed on where the hair is. But then that raises the question of what, how was the cloth and the body arranged at the point when the when the image formed, and this is where he he made he, uh, another uh, observation. I know where you're going with this, and this to me is absolutely fascinating. Uh, it suggests, if I if I may, if I may, that the the body was uh, levitating in a vertical position uh, at the time of the resurrection event, if we will. Well, what what it what he what it shows. I mean, uh, as a, as a as a scientist, he 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 sort of just describes what what he sees, and um, and then the the interpretation of that is is open to um, you know the what what people how read into it and so on. But that what he he found was that the. The, if you look at the the back of the body, and this is something as a as a doctor having seen post mortems or autopsies of um, of cadavers, um, you always find when the body is laying flat that it gets flattened at the back, even if there's rigor mortis there, because rigor mortis only affects muscle; it doesn't affect the skin or or the subcutaneous tissues under the skin. But if you look at the back image of the shroud because for those uh listeners who don't know the shroud shows the front and the back uh, image of a, a body of a man that as though it was uh wrapped around that he he lay down on it and it was it was uh put over his head and down on the the front of him as well and there's an image of the front of him and sort of head to head if you like there's a back image uh, on the further down the cloth okay so on that back image when you you look at the photographic negative of it you can see that there's rounding of the of the calves and the buttocks and so on that it's not and the shoulders it's not flattened now um the then you look at the hair and the hair in someone laying flat you would expect to be 
to be played out behind them and someone with long hair like the man on the shroud had but what you actually see is that it's hanging down on his shoulders so then people think oh so it's an image of someone standing but then you look at the feet and the feet are on, on two different levels and they're both pointing downwards so it implies that the the image was formed when the cloth was was taut and flat okay to get the undistorted distance coded information and the body was upright and suspended above the ground now this is fascinating because of the the immense amount of data um and research that points to the the identity of the of the man on the shroud having been none other than the historical Jesus of Nazareth and when we know that there are reports that during his lifetime that two things one is that he was at times seen to to rise above the ground or to not be affected by gravity in the sense of walking on water or even rising into the air at the ascension and so on and then also that there are times when he is said to have have been shining really you know very brightly now it's interesting that using modern 20th and 21st century science to analyze the shroud that we find evidence that a medieval person wouldn't have been able to see on the shroud that suggests that the that the shroud image may have been formed by someone who was was immune to gravity in that sense of of being uh, able to 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 levitate above the ground and also that it was formed by someone who at the moment that the image formed there was a bright burst of intense radiant energy that that came from from that body so it's 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 fascinating that on the one hand we've got the the forensic and historical evidence pointing to the identity being the same person as Jesus and then evidence that of the two things that were were described to have happened during his lifetime that may well have happened to this dead body of the the man on the shroud and yes uh it's interesting this this uh program being at, at easter time that um that there are many people who say well why would a dead body do that and could it have been you know is it conceivable that maybe this was a moment when there was some kind of some kind of resurrection event now i should say here that i don't have any religious acts to to grind on this i i i come from a from a, a jewish background myself and many the shroud researchers come from from all sorts of backgrounds but but i think one thing that we mostly have in, in common is that that we're we're just fascinated to try to understand something that where there's a challenge that it seems difficult to explain how did this image get there and so we want to 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 challenge our our rational scientific minds to to account for for how that could happen you you mentioned uh that the light would have been it would have been a short burst a short duration burst of of coherent ultraviolet light why has it been concluded that it was ultraviolet light Well, I I of course I'm I I'm not saying that it it definitely was ultraviolet light. What I'm saying is that that it is consistent with it having been ultraviolet light. You see scientifically that's that's what we can say in the sense that that use in the ENEA experiments using ultraviolet light, they uh got this this kind of change. Now, if you um visible light doesn't do that um and um 
um, X-rays don't don't do the don't produce the same kind of thing. So he um, actually in the at the ENEA they experimented with different wavelengths and different um, different durations of, of of bursts and so on. So it, what we can say is that having the photographic negative properties, the distance coded information, and the superficiality of the of the image does all point to it having been um, a, a burst of electromagnetic energy, which it would be consistent with it with it being ultraviolet, with there having been ultraviolet uh, light involved. But basically, um, the, the this dead body somehow shone to to produce the image. It's it's the it's the only consistent way that that many of us can see that that the image could have formed. Uh, Dr. Andrew Silverman on the line from the UK as we discuss the Shroud of Turin. And uh, Dr. Silverman's website is www.lightoftheshroud.com. Lightoftheshroud.com. I've hooked up, up to that on my uh, my website as well. Just click on Dr. Andrew Silverman's name on the homepage and it'll take you right to his site. Uh, let's take a time out. When we come back, I want to talk about, if we might, uh, some of the other images that were also uh, found on the Shroud. And and uh, the significance of that. And then we'll get into a discussion about what this all means. What does it mean that the light came from the body? If we take the, uh, the sort of the religious aspect out of the story, what also might it mean? What does light have to do with this story? Back with more of my conversation with Dr. Andrew Silverman right here on the new AM740, The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. As far as the Shroud being an interesting historical object, something that it's worth studying and worth thinking about, it, it doesn't matter at all if it's real. What matters is the stories that faithful through the generations have brought to it, and what we can learn about them through studying something like the Shroud. We are back with Dr. Andrew Silverman discussing the Shroud of Turin. Now, the... Um, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Silverman, there were other images uh, found on that linen, uh, including, we now believe, uh, coins on the eyelids, and also, uh, you can very sort of see very faintly images of what appears to be uh, various uh, plants and flowers. Of course, at that time, uh, they would have anointed or attempted to anoint the body uh, somewhat. Um, if the, in, in, in keeping with the Jewish uh, burial custom. Let's start with the coins. Can you tell me anything about the presence of, of coins on the eyelids? Um, well, I know that um, that there are definitely some uh, people who who um, have interpreted the, the image to say that there are coins there. I, I remain open-minded about it, to be honest, but I, I, I'm not convinced that the evidence is is completely conclusive about the about the coins. Um, regarding the um, the evidence of, of flowers, I'm, I'm not a botanist, but I had a, a, a long chat with uh, Professor Avinom Danin uh, from the the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, um, and um, he he is a botanist and he's an expert in the in the um, the plants of the of the region, um, and he um he, he has uh reported evidence of uh, impressions of um of plants and so on but and also of there have been reports of of um pollen that have been found on the on the shroud which which also fit with the with the if you triangulate them out so to speak 
that um, the, the, where the, the territories of the various types of plant intersect, that it intersects on a, on a region around Jerusalem, and that um, I, I went to a presentation he gave where he was saying, you know, uh, and he's also from a, he's also Jewish actually, um, a presentation that he gave where he was saying that, um, that these are pollens that the, the the plants that flower around March and April, um, that's when it all intersects. So so we can sort of place the the that the, um, the, the the shroud must have been exposed to the elements in Jerusalem sometime around March or April. Now, if we were to say when in history would that have been? Well, it depicts a, a, a Roman, the, the Roman crucifixion depicted on the shroud. We know that because we found, or, or other archaeologists have found remains of, of victims of crucifixion by the Romans who, who were crucified in a, in a, in a similar manner to what the forensics show about the, the shroud. And so the, the shroud image and the bloodstains fit with the, uh, the archaeological evidence and contradicts the medieval art evidence of how people used to think that the crucifixion happened and shows it more as it actually, as it actually did happen. Now, there's an interesting point here that, um, that for most of the time in, in Judea, when the, uh, uh, which is the region around uh, Jerusalem, when the, the Romans were, were crucifying their, their victims, they used to, to leave them out to the elements um, as, a, as an example for, you know, let the birds peck at them and so on, so people would see these rotting bodies and so on. But there was a, a, a period of, of time between 6 and 66, whether we call it AD or Common Era, whatever we want to call it, um, during that time, there was a there was a, a, a Jewish uh, leader who had some kind of limited power in uh, in the, the the province of of Judea, and he had a sort of deal with the the Romans. Okay, we can't stop you. Uh, torturing and and crucifying people, but can you can you at least um, uh, allow us to to bury them according to our traditions and according to our our, our Jewish customs? Which uh, some of your listeners probably know that the Jewish burials have to be done have to be done quickly, um, so that if people were going to be crucified, that the the Romans agreed that they would they would let the bodies be taken down from the the crosses when they were when they were dead and and buried. And so uh, and that was during between six and sixty six. So this was a, a victim of Roman crucifixion who was crucified in the environs around uh, Jerusalem in March or April, somewhere between six and sixty six. And then you've got all of the um, more specific uh, forensic evidence showing that the this man was tortured in the very specific way that was singled out particularly for for Jesus of Nazareth. That wasn't a standard practice that people would have a, a cap of thorns. And that's interesting as well, because all the, the medieval art shows a like a crown of thorns, like a circlet of thorns that was placed, whereas it, just common sense would tell you that that they why would a, a soldier be so artistic as to as to as to make uh, do that that what was much more likely is they just find a clump and uh, and stick it on his head and that's actually what you see on the the shroud image that the that the thorns had Im, impaled all over the scalp and interestingly you can actually distinguish anatomically consistently the the venous and 
arterial blood that was that was coming from this um, and, from these wounds. And also the the pollen around the head uh, corresponds with a type of plant in that's found again in and around Jerusalem that produces thorns. Yes. That's right. Now, the other thing that's interesting is the actual, uh, the weave of the linen itself, which I understand is a herringbone, which is consistent with first century AD um, uh, Jewish burials, but it's an upper class weave, um, which would also correspond with, I believe, uh, uh, the gospel according to John's account of the crucifixion, because we know in that account, it was Joseph of Arimathea, uh, some say it was Jesus' uncle, uh, who was quite wealthy, that provided the, the, the burial place and, and the shroud. Yes. Yes, that's right. Now, the, um, I, I want to go back to the, uh, the light again for a moment. Mm. Would it produce any sort of, if it was that type of light, uh, a sudden burst of, of ultraviolet light brighter than the sun, would it produce any sort of background radiation that could be measured? No. Um, in fact, um, it, it wouldn't do, um, because, you see, um, radiation is, is um, that, well, there's different types of radiation. Um, I, I don't want to give your... <laughs> Try and give your listeners a, a, a physics lecture, but 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 radiation like um, electromagnetic radiation is is only there momentarily. It doesn't it doesn't make something radioactive. For something to become radioactive, you have to actually change the um, the atomic nuclei themselves um, to um, to make them into a, an unstable. Uh, state such that they then they then decay, releasing releasing radiation. So um, no, if you if you um, if you shine ultraviolet light on something, it it doesn't make it radioactive. So the um, the importance that the light emanated from the body, and again taking I guess sort of the religious aspect out of it. I mean, I uh, let me put my cards on the table. I'm, sure. My listeners are this is not news to them. I'm a, I'm an Orthodox uh, Christian. I believe it is the burial uh, cloth of, of Jesus Christ, and I believe he was who he said he was, and so forth. But uh, taking that aspect out of it and just sort of looking at this uh, in a scientific way or perhaps even uh, from the perspective of quantum physics, what does that light, what's the significance of that light? Well, that's a, that's a fascinating question. You see, it all comes down to the questions about the nature of, of reality itself, actually, and, and what we actually fundamentally are as, as human beings. What is, what is our sentience? What is the mind? And um, um, it may seem to some listeners that I'm going off topic here, but I hope I'll be able to show them that I'm, I'm bringing it back to it. You see, it, you try to analyze down to its, its fundamentals the nature of, of what mind is, and you come up with two, two things, which is uh, like an input and output of mind, if you like. And one is awareness, and the other is, the other is will. 
So awareness is like the input, if you like, and will is like the output, to put it um, simplistically. And But what does that mean? We, we all have this notion that... Um, that we have free will, whether we sort of philosophically believe we do or not. We all have this notion of, of personal responsibility and credit and blame for what people have done, which implies that we think that, that we have some control over what we do. We're not just um, acting purely out of our genes and our upbringing, our environment and our circumstances. But what if free will were true? What that would mean is that mind is influencing matter, that you decide to do something, your mind, uh, a sort of uh, sentient consciousness, makes a decision, and then matter matter obeys it. Now, what would that mean? Now, now I, uh, when I was looking at the connection and trying to trying to understand quantum theory, I read a lot by um, a, a Nobel laureate, a Nobel Prize winning physicist by the name of of Erwin Schrödinger, and some of what he wrote in a in a in a um, wonderful scientific classic that he wrote called "What Is Life." Now, Schrödinger says that there's some fascinating things about the the nature of mind and one of these is that the mind and this is the way he puts it mind is always now okay that that we're always in the present tense and yet if you look at the the nature of physical law okay it doesn't actually define anything to be to be present it's as though everything past, present and future, right from the Big Bang until the end of the universe, if you like, according to the equations of science, could all be considered as one uh, tapestry, if you like, that's already there from, from, from beginning to end. But yet we subjectively and consciously have this sense, this notion that we are in the now and that there is a future that isn't yet fixed because we make decisions that can influence it. And yet, and we have memories of the past. We don't have memories of the future. So we have an arrow of time. We have a, a direction of it. Now, what Schrodinger said is that in that sense, that we, that mind actually makes time that without mind, there'd be no meaning to what we consider to be the, the change, the process of becoming that we know as, as time. And if that's the case, if time itself is the product of mind, then the mind can't be a product of time. And what he said, therefore, he derived from that, that it doesn't begin or end. It has to be eternal. So are you suggesting now, that, then that, that what that means is the mind and consciousness, well, not necessarily consciousness, but certainly the mind, which heretofore has been considered uh, domiciled within the brain, actually must then exist not only outside one's body, but outside time and space. Yes, that it actually that time and space uh, are, are properties of the of mind rather than the other way around and that another way of saying space space is simply the separation of points that's all it is um now um the the thing is that what schrodinger was also saying is that that mind has to be eternal and and you know the thing is that if you look at for example um near-death experiences that where the the brain waves go flat and yet when people are resuscitated they they tell you about all these experiences that they had while their brain wasn't working while it wasn't recording uh any information their mind was was uh was taking in information and this has led uh, many eminent 
scientists to um, to think that perhaps we have to reconsider our notion of of what the of what the mind is that it's not just made by the brain now the thing is that in this physical universe everything breaks down everything uh, everything decays and in fact interestingly jesus is said to have uh, addressed this this notion when he's quoted as having said you know in this world where where moths eat rust corrupts and thieves break in and steal right this that was a quite a good description of the of law the of entropy of thermodynamics of law entropy. entropy yes exactly yeah, that, that once you have separation once you have space and time that everything decays and that's the momentum that's the arrow of time but he he taught an opposite way of of uniting of of caring of of adding together of loving thy neighbor as thyself as he put it and now i don't think that was a religious that uh, he was trying to get people to 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 be goody goody or to or to bow down and and worship or anything like that. He was simply speaking about reason, and in fact, he never said he'd come to start a religion. No, when he, he was know. asked yes. what he was doing, he said he'd come to bear witness to the truth. Now, if if a physical universe of separation has happened out of a momentum of separating, of dividing that we've allowed to happen through our through our own compunction in, in free choice, then and that then restricts us and makes us bound by that that second law of thermodynamics that the tendency is that as time goes on, we think we're getting more advanced. But actually um, the natural momentum is 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 of is of decay. We think we're we're more advanced than the than the people of hundreds of years ago. Why? Because we can destroy the world so easily. You know, um, do we do we care about our fellow man more than more than they did? So, he, what what Jesus taught, I would suggest, and what he showed in the way he lived his life was a was a momentum that went the opposite way to the second law of thermodynamics through through uniting and seeing neighbor and self as as one and the same and this would this would be an interesting way of of seeing the evidence on the on the turin shroud uh, as being of showing what happens if you if you go against that momentum that breaks everything apart and if you unite and care as he did then you're no longer you're no longer subject to to decay that eternity becomes becomes far more becomes far more real to you right and and by becoming uh, i mean it's a process of devolution that we, that that we are undergoing and being confined in our bodies uh and this law of entropy uh which i guess according to the, the you know the genesis account is really synonymous with the fallen nature of man and you know in in genesis it's called i guess or referred to as original sin uh but this is what it's this is what's set in in into play i guess the law of entropy so jesus was telling us there is a way out um but but who who does what does that say about who he was right well um, he was the interesting thing there is that to come back to this question of the of the light that that may have formed the the image that if you if the the whole universe once came from a from a from a singularity of from from no thingness from where there was um, no space no time no matter and then if you look at the the science account of the of the big bang there was an era where there was where there was light. 
uh, the, the photon-dominated era, if you like, of the of the universe, and then matter sort of condensed out from that. Now, um, if the if as Schrodinger's other point, he said about the, the about the connection between mind and time, suggesting the eternal nature of, of mind. And the other point he said was that it, the implication of that all mind is one. That that we our our notion of of separate individuals is only a, a temporary state of affairs. That actually all that's different between us is the is the content of our memories and the directions of our choices. That fundamentally the nature of mind is the same in everyone, and yet we we make it we make it different. Now, if if that's the case, and if we we all came from this kind of oneness it would fit with this experience that a lot of people have in the near-death experiences that when they they have this this uh perception of a of a light and they and and people describe it like there was a lot of love in that light and so on and they have a sense of a sense of union from from within the light they may be seeing a connection from the the original source of of where we all came from so to speak and jesus if you look at what he what he actually taught it's very interesting because he didn't seem to be asking to be put on a on a pedestal he always said when when people were were cured after coming into contact with him he didn't say i have cured you or god has cured you he said your faith has cured you and he used to tell people that um all these things you see me do you also can do and he said, um, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed and, the, you know, the moving mountain thing, which interestingly fits in again with e equals MC squared, if you were to release the, the mass of the energy and the mass of a, of a, of a mustard seed, he said, then nothing will be impossible unto you. So then what, who he was then, it points to him being who he said he was as the son of man. It showed he was showing what humanity is capable of. And, and showing us that if, if perhaps if we live a life like, like he did, then we would no longer be, be bounded by the, after all, this, this word sin, um, has a lot of, uh, religious connotations to it that have the sort of accrued over the centuries. But if you go back to the basics, um, the word, for, for repent, in other words, to giving up sin, if you like, to uh, to ch change away from sin, uh, came from the Greek root metanoite, which simply means change your mind. So, if he was just point, perhaps pointing us to the two different momentums, if you like. There's the momentum of entropy that breaks everything apart, and then there's the opposite one, loving your neighbor as yourself, recognizing the, you know, having that sense of, of empathy and, and compassion that that he demonstrated to his, to his fellow man is actually the the antidote, if you like, to to what to what binds us and keeps us separate. And if as perhaps uh, as um, a scientist called uh, David Bohm pointed to, that that matter may be just frozen light, you see, and it's frozen become it's become encapsulated and and enforced, and maybe uh, the restriction of our of our minds is what holds us as as physical beings, and maybe he showed us how to undo that restriction and how to unfreeze matter, how to unwind that that limitation and that enforcement. You know that that saying, peace on earth 
goodwill to all men. I don't take that, as, although it is poetic and it's beautiful words and all of that. For me, that's also pure, pure science. Because what is will? To have free will, okay, you cannot be enforced. In other words, force can't make your decision for you if, if it were free. So freedom has to, can only prevail in a state of unenforcement, in a state of peace. And that's the, the fascinating thing about this, that perhaps as he was unwinding those restrictions, un reducing the force, the tension of space of, of that of that body, maybe it did become maybe that body did become lighter. Um, uh, maybe, you know, it, it did actually for what that one moment it did shine when he he always spoke about his his peace, you know. And he said, "My peace, I live leave with you," and so on. That maybe he was unenforcing those those atoms, re which reduced their mass and released the the light from them, and in so doing, that that was what caused the burst of radiant energy that that actually that actually formed the image because that, as i say it's something we can't we can't replicate with all those properties even with 21st century technology uh, dr silverman will take one final time out come back a few questions remain as we discuss the light of the shroud here on the conspiracy show am 740 zuma radio stay with us there's human nature that we always want to put a name with a face the scripture gives us the name the shroud gives us the face we are back with uh, dr andrew silverman uh, dr silverman what is the uh, the 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 absolute latest uh in information that we're learning about the shroud well um I, the um the latest information is is it's it's all very much on a, a, a work in progress. But I mean, for example, there are teams of scientists around the world in various places doing doing uh, further research. Uh, some um, in Italy, for example, the the ENEA uh, project, which I which I spoke of, uh, looking at at how the um, you can try to understand how perhaps uh, a burst of radiant energy could have could have formed the image and um, what um, I'm basically um, what my brief is to try to understand is what could have caused that to happen okay there, there is all this evidence that has been that many researchers have found forensically and um looking at the the, the how uh this chemical changes that, that happened in the linen and how could that have happened which suggests that the that the burst of light did did cause the image to form and uh so the the question then remains why did that happen and how did that happen and and that's where I think we have to to then sort of delve a bit deeper into into the the connection between mind and matter if we're to understand it because it seems to me there's there's three different ways that you can look at it either you can think it's a it's a forgery but then if how could it have been a forgery when we can't replicate it now even with our, our modern technology or you can say it was a miracle god did it it's a mystery and you can never understand it and again that's a bit of a in a way a sense a a, a, a non-starter because um 
then you know why why look into it any further and it seems a bit uh, a bit arbitrary especially since there is a physical image that's there on the cloth that we can study and that has been studied scientifically or we can say that yes it is scientifically understandable it's not supernatural but we have to expand our our concept and our, our understanding of what nature entails that nature isn't only about the substantial, the the material. Nature also includes the mind. The mind is natural, and uh, our our free will is a natural thing. That's that's part of nature, and yet it's where it's where mind can can influence matter. And so it's to it's to to try to see the the point where the where the two meet, and whether. Again, the, the, again, this leads us to three ways of looking at the connections between mind and matter. Many scientists think that the that the mind is just a, what they call an emergent property of matter, that you arrange atoms in a certain shape to make the brain cells and then the mind somehow happens. But to me, um, that that doesn't quite hold hold water because you know uh, a, a camera can observe a scene and process the information, but is there a mind in that camera that's actually aware of what it's seeing? A book contains information and the letters on the pages, but is there is does the book know the story? And yet, as 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 human beings, we have this subjective sense of of awareness. So either you think that people think that. Mind is an emergent property that is nothing more than the arrangement of, of atoms. Then there's some people who say that mind and matter are two completely different things. These are the dualists. And there's some kind of mysterious way that they interact, that, that matter is something that's physically real and that mind is something abstract. And then there's the third way of looking at it, which is the one that, that, that I would suggest seems to make more sense, to see it as a continuum, especially since quantum theory suggests that this notion of the objective reality out there, independent of the observer, doesn't hold water, that, that without the, the observation that, that matter is, is, is in no specific state, that it's like a, a, a a cloud of possibilities, if you like, until right. it's until it's actually observed. So, in that sense, that shows that it's it's all interconnected and it's it's all a continuum of mind and matter, and that maybe if that's the case, that explains how such a thing as awareness and will can exist together, because uh, because of, through this continuum, and that perhaps this particular individual, this human being known as Jesus of Nazareth, two thousand years ago, showed us a way of that will could be exercised in the direction of uniting, of caring, loving the neighbour as self, to, to undo the, the bonds of, of matter, the restriction of, of matter, and release it as, as its original primal nature, the, the, of the light that it, that it came from. And perhaps that's what left the image on the shroud, not as, a, as like a magic show of a spectacle of, of saying, um, you know, that you can do spectacular things, but... Look how immense and limitless the the potential and the capacity well, of every human being is. That that if you look at a um, the whole physical universe, any material object, however big, 
it, it doesn't actually, if it doesn't have free choice, then it's, it's nothing more than a collection of, of forces. And yet a human being, any human being, whoever they are in the world, whatever, you know, nationality, race, religion, gender, whatever, every human being, because they're, they're someone who is sentient and they have, they have freedom of choice, they have more power over determining time itself through through influencing the future through through choice than than the whole physical universe of itself does so it, it's a demonstration of the of the limitless infinite capacity of, of all human beings that, that's what it if you're asking me my own uh, subjective interpretation of the of the shroud image it's it's that well, to, if, to if, cherish um, the value of humanity if if um, matter is condensed thought uh, I mean, and and I mean, it, Jesus was able to do that. We are taking sort of tiny steps in that direction. Uh, you witness the power of intention experiments at Stanford University under uh, Dr. William uh, Tiller, I believe it was, and which demonstrate, I, I believe, the, in the experiment, there were a number of them, but in one, a number of individuals uh, focused on a uh, container of water, I don't know if it was a, a test tube or a, a, a vial of water, whatever, they concentrated on it, they were able to change the pH level of the water. Are you familiar with that experiment? Uh, not specifically that one, but I, I have heard of, of similar ones. And also, um, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake has, has done a lot of a lot of work on this as well. But you know, I once went to um, an inaugural lecture by the first professor of parapsychology uh, in the in the UK, where he'd been uh, presenting what the state of evidence as it was then in the 1980s about whether whether or not mind over matter exists. And um, I was a student at the time, and um, in my in my arrogant way, I, at the end, at question time, I, I put my my arm up, and I said, I'd, I'd just like to to suggest that in raising my hand, I've just proved the the power of mind over matter because I decided to raise my hand and it went up. So this is the this is the for me is the problem is that we tend to get caught up constantly in in going round in circles looking for evidence of what we is already straight in front of our noses anyway. And then, and then we stop there to see, you know, oh, we can demonstrate that mind is influencing matter, but we, our, our moral systems, our legal systems, uh, all have this notion of personal responsibility, which implies that free will exists, which means that mind over matter exists. It's like, uh, as I say, we're, we're the, so we, we all guys get caught up on the, on the notion of authenticity of the shroud when, you know, we can't make it even with 21st century technology, and yet st people still want to say it's a medieval form. Forgery. So I, I'd like to take things a step further and say, okay, let's, just for the sake of argument, say what if it is actually true? Then try to um, understand what does that mean? What are the implications? How, how does that change our understanding of the nature of reality, the nature of the physical universe and the nature of humanity and our place within that universe and our place within existence and how, where do we come from? How do we continue after death? There's so many exciting uh, possibilities that um that are left and and of course i'm i'm not suggesting that the um that the only way that people can continue is through through some kind of um some kind of physical resurrection to me that's not the that's not the the meaning of the shroud it, it, for me it, uh, because you see all it, the the point is that though that after the the body had died that 
that that image was still able to form. It shows that the power of mind over matter was still there. It could well have been that that there was a resurrection process there. But the but the the clue to that, the 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 uh, inference from that for me is that is that death is death is not the end. If the we know we know forensically that that was a dead body that that was wrapped in the shroud, because the. Um, if it was bleeding, would have been bleeding so heavily from all of those wounds that the that the cloth would have been completely saturated in blood, unless he was already dead when he was wrapped in the cloth. And then, uh, and this is again going back to Dr. Lavoie's experiments, that only the the blood that had been shed most recently before death that hadn't yet dried. That would have been the part that would have um, that would have uh, impressed the 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 uh, bloodstains upon the cloth. Right. Yeah, my, and my, interestingly, there's no there's no body image underneath those those stains, which implies that the the body died, was wrapped in the cloth. Okay, so it was a dead body that was wrapped in the cloth, and then the image happened after after that, after the blood stains from the dead body. So that. That then is further evidence that the that the, whatever formed that image was involved uh, happened as a result of the of the body that was in there that had already died. Final question, Doctor Silverman. The the evidence then contained in the shroud of a possible resurrection event, or whatever you'd like to call it. What does that suggest to you happened afterwards, if anything? Of course, we know. That according to the Bible, and wit- there were witnesses that saw uh, a, a Jesus again walk uh, the earth after the supposed uh, crucifixion. Uh, is there any linkage there between the evidence in the shroud and the accounts in the Bible that Jesus again walked the earth? Well, yes. I mean, if a if a dead body can somehow be be raised upright and be suspended above the ground and 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 produce this burst of of radiant energy then you know it may well be consistent with this notion that that actually that body was changed into a less enforced state and that's why he looked different people didn't quite recognize him perhaps uh, at first when they when they saw him and and just as um, we're part of this momentum in, in the physical universe that, that breaks everything apart of becoming uh, more more separated. Maybe he set in motion a, a reverse momentum that was going the other way, becoming less enforced. Which is why uh, at the point when the when the image formed on the shroud, that he was uh, at that moment he was suspended above the ground. His the body was less dense, and then later it said at the at the ascension that he was actually seen to rise up. Above the above the ground, um, and then and then seemed to disappear. That ultimately, he was he was demonstrating to us that this that we identify ourselves with the with the physical body, but that's but that's not what we are. That that he could that maybe he could use that body as a as a as a vehicle, if you like, but that ultimately. The, the that body itself vanished and yet he said he would he would always be 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 there i really appreciate your time a fascinating discussion uh, i look forward to talking about the shroud each and every year and uh, you've done amazing uh, amazing work again the website lightoftheshroud.com thank you again it's a pleasure dr andrew silverman stay tuned when we come back Can a global brand strategist do for Greece what he's done for Apple computers? 
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show here on AM740 Zuma Radio. Don't go away. Did you say dance? Come on, my boy. Conspiracy Show. A couple of weeks ago, the International Monetary Fund approved a 28 billion euro or 36.7 billion dollar bailout for Greece and warned Athens there was no room for any missteps. Now, the the approval ends months of financial uncertainty for, for Greece. The country secured a joint IMF-EU bailout package after agreeing to a series of painful economic reforms and spending cuts. Despite the bailout, though, Greece's future remains uncertain. Yes, uh, there seems to be an endless road of austerity measures ahead, but there's another problem, and that is Greece's image abroad. Witness, for example, a new reality show that airs on England's Channel 4 called Go Greek for a Week, in which Greek nationals explain to British citizens how to scam the system. This, unfortunately, is the perception a lot of uh, people now have of Greece, and Greeks in particular, and this has all been laid bare uh, by uh, Greece's economic problems, which revealed a great deal of, of corruption and, uh, and, and an overly generous social welfare program. So, how to fix Greece's image? Enter my next guest. He's a brand strategist with a global perspective. Peter Economides is the owner and founder of Felix BNI, based in Athens. He's a former executive vice president and worldwide director of client services at global advertising agency McCann Erickson Worldwide and head of global clients at TWA Worldwide. He's managed and grown leading ad agencies as CEO, president in Greece, Mexico, and the United States. At McCann Erickson Worldwide, he was responsible for the global management of the $1.8 billion Coca-Cola advertising account. At TWA Worldwide, he structured and rolled out the global Think Different campaign following the return of Steve Jobs to Apple. Peter Economides joins me on the line from Athens. Hello, Peter. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi, Richard. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, Peter, first of all, Greece is a, an economic basket case. It's become uh, a bit of the, the whipping boy for, for Europe and, and, and the rest of the world. What's happened? How did this happen? I think that what has happened to Greece is the result of... Um, it, it's a process that has taken place over a long, long period of time. I think that it all starts with, you know, if you think of the image of modern Greece, it's really an image that was formed in the 60s. Uh, and I'm talking here about the years of Onassis and Maria Callas and Mikis Theodorakis and Khadzidakis and all that wonderful, glamorous world that revolved around Mykonos. At the time, you may recall, 
that Olympic Airlines was considered to be the world's best airline, a very glamorous black and white world, which culminated in a movie called Zorba the Greek with Anthony Quinn and Alan Bates. And I think that is the image that Greece managed to, uh, to really evolve into during the 60s. And I'm afraid we got stuck in a time warp uh, with Zorba the Greek. And you can see that being reflected in movies like My Big Fat Greek Wedding, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the recent ABBA movie, which was shot a couple of years in Greece, and stuff like that. So it's full of the Zorba cliché, I would say. And, and, and this has been uh, sort of underscored by the, the, the financial crisis and the books have been opened and, and people look at this, what seems on the surface to be a ridiculously generous social welfare program. And there's some truth to that. Uh, but do you think there's something else, uh, not to get overly political here, but something else going on? Uh, you know, I've, I've talked to, you talk to taxi drivers in, in Athens and they say that what's going on right now is, is uh, it's, it's like a crime scene and that, that Greece is being pillaged by, I don't know, Goldman Sachs. You know, we have beaches being sold, etc. as a result of this, this problem. Do you, do you see something else afoot here as well? Yes, I do. I think, I think that we're dealing with a fundamental issue over here. I think that this financial crisis is in fact the result of a social crisis, a, a crisis where values have been eroded, where, where, where culture has eroded, where Greeks have lost touch with themselves where over the past 20 years, 30 years, and particularly over the past 10 years, they've become rampant consumers. They've been pursuing wealth instead of pursuing possibility and opportunity, instead of carving out a real role for themselves in, in, in the modern world. And, you know, this talk about pillage from the financial institutions, yeah, you know, without becoming political, I think there may be some truth to that. I, I don't want to go there. But when Greeks ask me what's wrong and who's to blame, I always turn around and say, nobody but ourselves. And I sincerely, sincerely believe that. We have an image crisis, a self-image crisis to deal with. Uh, before we, we get into how you think it, we should uh, sort of climb, or Greece should climb out of that uh, problem, I, I want to just take a moment for you to establish your bona fides and what you did, the remarkable turnaround uh, at Apple after the return of Steve Jobs. Um, if you could just explain where Apple was before uh, Steve Jobs came back and, and, and you got on board and, and what happened to Apple afterwards. Sure. Well, what happened, I'm going back nine times to 1997. At the time, I was working for TBWA Worldwide in New York, an agency, interestingly enough, founded by a Greek. The T is Bill Tragos, who's a guy from Kalamata originally, who was born in St. Louis, in fact, but his family came from Kalamata. And I had left McCann Erickson and joined TBWA. And... Um, our Los Angeles office had, uh, had uh, successfully uh, won the, the, the Apple business um, for the United States. Uh, that was on Steve Jobs' return. And, and I was involved in the team that really rolled out the global, the global campaign, Think Different, which was really the turnaround in, in, in Apple. Um, at the time, Apple was bankrupt. And this is no exaggeration. Um, Apple machines were, were slow. They were expensive. They'd lost their appeal to the creative community, which was always the mainstay of, of Apple's business, where the real Apple champions resided. And Steve came back, and, and his job was to, was to turn this company around. 
And um, the, the work that we did, which was the famous Think Different campaign, was all about reestablishing the DNA of Apple of really reconnecting the company with the fundamental reasons why it became Apple in the first place. I must remind you that Steve had left quite a few years earlier, and then he'd come back in 1997. Well, what happened since that campaign, and, and please, Richard, I'm not trying to say that this campaign did it, but it did lay the groundwork for everything that happened afterwards, is that 14 years later, Apple is the second most valuable corporation in the world after General Electric, which is a remarkable achievement in, in 14 short years. Absolutely. Yes, I mean, it is remarkable. And, and, and if, uh, if we can bring that same mindset to, <laughs> to, to Greece, I mean, the possibilities are endless. Uh, you, you talked about in, in I, I saw one of your lectures online, and you talked about one of the philosophies at uh, Apple at the time was that, that those crazy thinkers that have the audacity to think that they can change the world. Those are usually the people that do. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And if you look at the, the structure of that Apple commercial, this script, um, it's really interesting because it starts off by talking about the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently, the ones who, who have no respect for the status quo. And, you know, when you look at that bit of copy, I, I can picture the average Greek inside it. That's exactly how Greeks are perceived today. We are the round pegs in the square holes. We are the rebels. We are the misfits, certainly inside the European community. The second part of that commercial goes on, and it says you can't ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And that's where the connection is made between the crazy ones and the geniuses the ones who think they can change the world. And, and the point that I always make with that is that Greece is in a position to become the apple of the Mediterranean. And I strongly, strongly believe this. What made you come back to, to Greece? You, you, you lived for a time in South Africa. Why, why come back? Well, Richard, let me, let me explain that to you. I was, in fact, in New York at the time. Um, I was leading the glamorous life of a, of, a, of a senior executive in one of the world's biggest and sexiest ad agencies flying all over the world. And, and I came to Greece on business. And, and what I'm going to say to you is going to sound a little strange, but I saw the most beautiful sunset I've ever seen in my life. And, and I said to myself, you know, <laughs> this is what it's all about. You know, I just want to reconnect with, with all of this stuff. And that sunset for me is more a symbol of, of everything that I love about this country. You know, the, the, the beautiful nature, the, uh, the, the inspiration, the human measure that you feel here. You know, you, you really feel that things have got a human proportion to them. Yes. The generosity of the Greeks. Um, there are unique words in the Greek language, like philotimo, which, which is untranslatable. Um, it really means respect for friends, respect for other human beings. These are just wonderful values, which I find so incredibly attractive, magnetically attractive and inspiring. Not to suggest that you are claiming to speak for Greeks, but someone might say, well, what makes uh, Peter Economides qualified to speak for Greeks uh, about being Greek? Have, so I would ask you, have you been sort of welcomed or do you feel like an outsider? Well, I'm in an interesting position because I'm actually a second generation South African Greek. Uh, when I first came to Greece, which was back in the 80s, I, I should explain that this is my second time here. 
I used to run McCann Erickson in Athens during, during the 80s before I went to Mexico and uh, uh, New York. Um, you know, when I came here, I, I felt, and I guess it's still like that, I'm, I'm kind of like Greek, but not quite. Uh, and when I came here the first time, I couldn't speak Greek terribly well at all. In fact, I've learned how to speak Greek. But I, I think I've got so much Greek inside me that I'm able to understand this country pretty well. Uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, and I find so many Greeks from the diaspora saying this to me, we almost grew up in a time warp because my grandmother emigrated from this part of the world in the 20s. I'm talking about the 1920s. And, and you know, she, she brought with her older values which perhaps have disappeared over the years. And those are the values that I was brought up with. And I've often heard it said that Greeks from outside Greece actually appreciate what this country is all about more than Greeks who were born here. And I think there might be some truth in that. Speaking as a non-Greek, but someone who married a Greek, I mean, I've heard that as well. It's almost as if the those values of of Greece, let's say before the Second World War, certainly before the, the Civil War, were frozen and preserved within the Greek diaspora. I think that's exactly right. And, and, you know, particularly, you know, you, you talk about the, the, the Civil War and the Second World War, but if you look at the period from the 80s onwards, which is after the junta, I think this was the, the, the critical period in, in Greek history when values collapsed. And I think they did collapse big time. All right, let's take a quick time out. Uh, Peter Economides stays with us as we discuss the rebranding of Greece. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. Stay with us. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits. The rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, but the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Welcome back. Peter Economides stays with us, live on the line from Athens, a global brand strategist, and uh, his resume, uh, absolutely uh, impressive, to say the least. Uh, he has uh, uh, worked with some of the global giants in the ad world, including McCann Erickson Worldwide, and, uh, of course, TBWA Worldwide, uh, where he rolled out the global Think Different campaign, which was really instrumental in turning Apple computers around uh, in the late 90s. Uh, they were in a very uh, dire straits when Steve Jobs hired uh, Peter uh, to to rebrand Apple, which is what he's, he's he's done, or which is what he did, and now he's hoping to do the same thing for Greece. 
Uh, Peter, we should take a few moments and and uh, explain what you mean by brand. Yeah, you know, Richard, I've spent I've spent years dealing with brands. Um, like most people in my business, I, I, I studied a book written by Kotler, Philip Kotler, and my my feelings about what a brand really is have evolved over time, and I've come to a very simple place. Brand to me is simply your reputation. It's what people think of you. And whether you're aware of it or not, you've got a brand. And that applies to you whether you're an individual, whether you're a company or a country for that matter. How do you feel when you, I don't know if you've seen Go Greek for a week, but you certainly, I'm, I'm sure, have heard about it. That is that the, the brand now that Greek presents to the world, Go Greek for a week, that, that horrible show? I'm afraid that this is a very large part of the brand that Greece presents to the world. And here I want to draw the distinction between brand, which is what people think about you, and branding, which is influencing what people think about you. And I think here again that Greece has not done a great job of branding, even though this is one of the greatest brands in the world. Um, We haven't done a great job at branding. We haven't really managed what people think about us. We've done a fairly good job selling tourism, but we haven't shaped impressions substantially enough. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. When we come back, uh, we'll find out how Peter Economides would like to rebrand Greece. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. Don't go away. Tonight, we're going to change the lives of three British people, Greek style. Hairdressing has been Jane's passion since the age of 18. Andrew's a successful orthopaedic surgeon. And John's a busy bus driver. They're going to live for a week like Greeks, experiencing some of the truly bizarre ways of doing business that wrecks the Greek economy. They'll have huge wage rises, early pensions, and be asked to pay big bribes. All to help us understand how Greece got into the terrible trouble that's threatening us all. Our three British taxpayers are ready to start their Greek odyssey. Come on, Greek. We've made an appointment for Jane with Mr. Costas. When she agreed to go Greek for a week, she didn't know what it would involve. She's in for a surprise. Hello, Jane. Hello. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and see me today. My name is Ulysses Costas, and I'm going to be your Greek accountant. If you're prepared to trust me and put your financial well-being into my hands and go Greek for a week, I think I can make you an even happier woman. Your salary per annum, this is a part-time salary of £12,000, is that right? You're still working at 54. So my, my first question has to be, why? Because I want to work. Britons work some of the longest hours in Europe, but thanks to a Greek early retirement, Jane can afford to work no hours at all. It's mad, like, getting nearly all my wages and I'm not having to work for it. It's just absolutely crazy. Uh, Peter, I've been following you on uh, social media and watching your your lectures on on YouTube. One of the things that you've been demanding is that uh, uh, Greece, uh, particularly when trying to deal with this crisis... Uh, get less political, which strikes me as rather odd, uh, considering that that Greeks essentially invented politics, or certainly the word. Um, the idea that that Greeks should put politics aside seems to me, uh, well, it would be a Herculean task, to say the least, don't you think? 
I think this is critical. I think that the fundamental job that Greece needs to do in order to sort out its image is to sort out its self-image, what we feel about ourselves. And I saw a really interesting piece of research the other day where the image of Greece, the research I believe was done amongst 130 countries, the image of Greece was somewhere in the middle. It wasn't that bad. But the next chart in this document spoke about the self-esteem of Greeks, how they consider themselves. And Greece was rock bottom. Now, brand is what people think of you, which is created by the impressions that you make. And when you think about a country, impressions are made by every single person, by what they say and what they don't say, and what they do and what they don't do. Politicians, by necessity, are, are stuck with, normally in Greece, a, a two-year time horizon. Even though we have elections every four years, you'll find that there's usually a major government reshuffle along the way. And each, each politician is there to make his mark during that time period. And he considers very highly the political benefit and the political cost of whatever he does. Branding, unfortunately, is not a two-year process. It takes a lot longer than that. It, it takes forever. Branding is an ongoing story. And, you know, if you look at what we've done over the years, it's criminal. We've changed our logo, I believe it's 16 times since 1990. We've changed advertising campaigns 14 times. That is not the way to brand. Coca-Cola hasn't really changed their logo at all in 125 years. Right, probably. right. But, but how do you, uh, I mean, the longest journey begins with a single step, but, but how do you then reverse uh, this process? I mean, we talk about politics and, and uh, uh, you know, we, we look at the, uh, the political culture in, in, in Greece, very divisive. Uh, everyone in Greece seems to have a, a, an opinion when it comes to politics. How do you reverse that? Uh, something that's taken decades and decades and decades, if not millennia, to, uh, you know, to establish itself. Well, Richard, you know, there's, there's, you know, they say that the Chinese word for crisis actually consists of two characters, one being danger and the other opportunity. And I think that there is huge opportunity in crisis. And let me explain why I'm saying that. Crisis represents by its very nature, a disruption in the way that things are going on. Okay. And disruption in this particular case carries with it great danger. Danger is a remarkable stimulus to any human being because it evokes our basic, basic need for survival. And I don't know if you find yourself in really dangerous situations. I have. And, and what happens invariably is that suddenly you become much more capable than you ever thought yourself would be, simply because you need to escape from danger and survive, okay? And, and I think this is one of those moments in history. And what I've seen is Greeks responding to this need to actually take charge themselves of their own destiny and do something about it. And this, I think, is the big opportunity. The Greek economy is is very centered around public contracts. For example, we have the railways there, which are pretty well extinct. We have the motorways, which are just beginning, harbors, airports, waste management. How does branding impact uh, these life-giving projects? These life-giving projects have been the source of income 
in, in a system which admittedly has has got its bad points. Uh, I'm talking here about corruption. And I think there's a realization now amongst amongst the public at large that, that many of these projects, uh, vital as they are, um, have been overly expensive, um, things have been squandered somewhat, and that, you know, although they're life-giving, they've been somewhat of a drain on, on public finances, the inefficiencies that exist. And I think that by Greeks waking up and realizing that the only way out of this crisis is to create a new path out of this, they're starting to have a critical look at these public institutions, and they're demanding reform. They're demanding reform. So I think rebranding Greeks makes them look more critically at their public institutions. I, I don't know. It, it sounds so simple. Uh, rebrand and uh, everything else falls into place. Uh, I, I don't know. We'll discuss further when we come back here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Stay with us. Let's talk about the, bon- the bonuses that you earn here. What bonuses? I don't really get bonuses. I get paid a flat wage and that's all. Right. Well, if you're prepared to go Greek for a week, we can find you some bonuses. Such as? The first bonus we'll talk about is actually turning up for work. Oh, let me qualify that by saying turning up for work early. For example, if you're picking up a bus before you start your route. Are you kidding? No, so you would be paid a bonus for checking on the passenger tickets. When I come on the bus and it, I check their tickets to see if it's a return, well, I would get a bonus. Yes, you're entitled to a bonus for that as when you're in Greece. Mm. You will get an allowance of £75 a year for buying milk. Really? For milk? Yes, indeed. And most importantly of all, you would get a bonus because you're a married man. Move me to Greece. Move me to Greece now. I went to see this man today, didn't I? You know, the accountant fella. And he's basically told me that the equivalent in England would be an extra £35,000 a year. Shut up. No, serious. On top of what I normally get at work a week Mm. after tax, if I was Greek for a week, this extra money of £429.15. pence. Oh my goodness. If I earned this wage, it would be nice. But, you know, this country would go down the pan, wouldn't it? Peter Economides is a brand strategist and he's owner and founder of Felix BNI. He's uh, live on the line from Athens. Now, now branding Greece is uh, is, a, is a feel-good way to bring attention to foreign investment in Greece, but businesses obviously look beyond that. They look at a stable taxation system, a legal system that allows for justice to be served quickly. These are areas where Greece uh, has had and continues to have a pretty bad track record. So where do you fit in and where does your strategy fit in here? Richard, I think you've touched one of the biggest obstacles that we've got to, to actually creating our way out of this crisis. I think the will is there on the part of the people, certainly on the part of many young, super creative Greeks that I've come across, especially during the past few months that I've been involved in um, in, in this whole discussion around rebranding Greek, uh, Greece. Uh, I've come across some brilliant people. And I think the biggest obstacle that they face in Greece is precisely the issues that you that you're talking about. And I'm afraid that if these issues are not unplugged, if, 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 the, if the path is not unblocked, we're going to suffer from a brain drain. And I think that, you know, if I was in power, the very first thing that I would do is to fast track legislation to, to allow especially young creative entrepreneurs to actually go out there and create. And there are many obstacles in the way. 
It takes ages to set up a company. The legal system, which you referred to, the fact that in this country bankruptcy is something which is is is, is criminal. You, you you go to jail um, if if you're bankrupt, and all these things stand in the way of creativity, and and this has to be released. I have an idea to create a free creative zone, much like the free trade zones that you find in many in many countries around the world, where creativity is encouraged with special legislation which allows young talent to truly perform. I want to take a moment, uh, we touched on this earlier, but, but discuss infrastructure, because obviously if Greece doesn't step up and make serious changes to its infrastructure, you can brand as much as you want, but you'll have no results. Uh, have you been able to connect with those that can make those changes from within? Richard, uh, I am connecting. It's, it's inevitable because of the, the following that, that my dialogues have created on social media. Um, I've, I've, you know, there have been quite a few million people have been exposed to what I'm saying. And it's inevitable now that I am having discussions, both in the private sector and the public sector, about ways in which we can actually fast track some change. To make a complete infrastructural overhaul would take generations. I'm afraid we don't have that kind of time. So I think it needs some real concerted effort by um, private initiative, uh, through private initiative in combination with the public sector, and very importantly, Greeks abroad. You know, Greeks in North America particularly, I think have got an enormous power in, in influencing some of the change that can and should take place in this country. You talked about, uh, you know, your presence in social media and, and your work in this area in terms of rebranding Greece. I mean, this has, has gone viral. So I'm, I'm guessing the demands on you must be tremendous. What are some of the, the requests that the average Greek citizen, even the global Greeks, are asking of you? <laughs> well, they range from, they range, I've had some pretty weird requests. Um, I remember somebody from Crete uh, sending me a private message on Facebook. And what he said to me was, uh, he said, I'm a writer and I want to write a book. You must have great contacts. Could you put me in touch with a publishing company? By the way, that's typical Greek behavior, right? It's like, I know somebody who knows somebody. Right. So that's how they get things done, right? So I said to him, look, instead of asking me, you know, you're welcome to just post something on my page, on my Facebook page, which he did. And within 15 minutes, he'd found two publishing companies, right? Which to me is just great because that shows the power of collaboration. It shows the power of social media. It shows the power of conversation. And I've had other requests like, you know, I run a small hotel and this is my new logo. What do you think of it? And I need some help with my website and all sorts of stuff like that. Stimulated by these requests, I created a special Facebook page called the Yinete Workshop. And I need to explain the word yinete. Um, yinete in Greek means literally it can be done. Um, and this is a response to one of the most commonly heard phrases in this country, which is then yinete. It cannot be done. Um, and what I'm saying to people is get rid of the not bit and keep the it can bit. Okay. Um, I've digressed a bit. So I opened up the yinete workshop on Facebook, which is a forum where people who are looking for specific help and assistance can reach out to people who are offering specific help and assistance. The response was remarkable, I can tell you. Free, free translations into Chinese, for example. 
uh, free Photoshop, you know, wonderful things. Are you getting paid for your rebranding uh, of Greece? No. This has been completely a viral thing. I'll tell you exactly what happened. I gave this 30-minute speech up in Thessaloniki at a, uh, a management conference uh, to 300 people. And uh, it was a 30-minute speech. And it went up onto YouTube. And it went viral, which is remarkable. A 30-minute speech on branding in English went viral. And it went truly viral. So it all started from there. And I said to myself, I can't drop this. I've got to do something with it. And I've literally been working sometimes 24 hours around the clock because I'm running a business at the same time, just, you know, just keeping this thing alive. Exactly. So, I mean, can you afford to, 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 to give away these branding concepts and, and for free and, and, and maintain, you know, your uh, Felix BNI, uh, keep that afloat as well? Richard, there are two aspects to this. Um, I feel a duty to keep it alive. You know, I, I, I went through a lot of soul-searching um, it was in December, I started on vacation. And I did a lot of soul searching and I said to myself, I've got to keep this alive. And I've done that, I've kept it alive and I've kept my business running at the same time. And I've given a lot of stuff away for free. Um, I've produced, you know, a couple of campaigns and I've said to people, just use them, just go for it, just, just do what you like with it. So I, I just want to get stuff out there. I've also had a response, by the way, from, from private corporations who are interested in using some of my ideas. And the response there has been, you know, very positive. And I must say that on that side, there is some revenue which, which comes back in. But it's not substantial revenue. It just covers some costs. In, in terms of, uh, you know, rebranding and, and uh, culture and tourism, you know, two obviously huge fundamental uh, industries for Greece. Uh, what are your thoughts on on the best way to come up with a campaign? Uh, I mean, traditionally, uh, I guess in Greece, it's been sort of top down, you know, from the Ministry of Culture and the Ministry of Greek Tourism, as opposed to a model in the West where it's more sort of bottom up, you know, uh, partnerships with corporations and so forth. Yeah, I think that bottom up is is absolutely the way to go. And I did a recent exercise for a city in Cyprus called Limassol, where this to me is a model of, of how branding should take place. Uh, I'll give you a quick description. I was approached by seven of the city's leading business people who felt the need personally to do something to, uh, to uplift the, the image of their city. And my proposal to them was that we take this onto Facebook and open it up to the entire population. And, and the response was remarkable. So I actually did this whole branding concept by working with the entire city and, and developing a brand with them, which means that the big benefit of that is that they feel it. It's theirs. You know, it's not imposed from above. It's not some fancy little ad slogan or, um, you know, a logo, which I find absurd. It's rather felt deep inside them. It comes out from within. Is branding grease like branding olive oil? No, but branding olive oil is part of branding grease. Explain. You know, the huge difference between, you know, a country. A country, at the end of the day, consists of people. And even to, to for some people to even think of the idea that they might be considered as a brand is horrific. And I sympathize with that view. Um, but the, the, the basic principles, the disciplines behind branding, the disciplines of social anthropology, of social psychology, they certainly apply. 
So to me, branding a nation is all about working with people, helping people to find their identity, to discover their story. Because a great brand is always a great story. Now, branding an olive oil is a lot, lot, lot less complex. Olive oil doesn't speak back to you. 11 weeks certainly do. Has this process caused you to rethink your own brand? Oh, yes, it has indeed. In fact, this process has has affected my brand. Um, you know, whether they knew it or not, I'd probably affected the lives of most Greeks in one way or another through my work over the years on brands such as Coca-Cola and Apple and Nestle and all sorts of other things. Um, but all of a sudden, I find that I'm not just a professional, I'm a brand in and of myself, okay? Which is an interesting new perspective. I've never seen myself like that. I was always the guy working behind the scenes and suddenly I am, I've got the light on me. It's a little different. It's a whole new ball game for me, I've been attending. Uh, are you a political person? Would you consider running for a parliament, for example? You know, Richard, if I ever did, I, I, you know, I think that the big benefits, the big advantage that I've got is that my filter, my way of looking at things is totally non-political. And I realize that what I'm doing is political to a large extent. But the way in which I look at things is, is largely, it's absolutely non-political. It's, it's through my lens as a branding person. And I keep saying to myself, stay true to who you are. Don't try to, don't try to play to what people may be expecting of you. Tell them what you think. Tell them what you believe as a professional. I can't tell you whether or not I would go into politics, but if I ever did, I'd want to keep that very honest, straight perspective of having some other kind of filter to look at things through, rather than playing to what people want, which I think is wrong. Peter Economides is a brand strategist and owner and founder of Felix BNI based in Athens. Uh, now, some would some point to this sort of the corruption in, in, in Greek politics and say, you know, they're partially responsible for bringing Greece to its knees. And that those same corrupt forces might want to see you fail. First of all, do you do you heed that warning? And, and, and if so, how would you protect yourself? Yeah, you know, there is I think there is that uh, there is that danger. And uh, I've kind of said to myself, well, you know, so what? I'm not here to play a political game. If the forces that be in this country prevail and they manage to, to shut me up, well, so be it, you know, I'm, because again, I'm not, I'm not playing a political game. But my feeling is, 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 is different to that. I think there's a fundamental disconnect happening between institutions and people. And this is not a Greek phenomenon, it's global. You can see it in the 99% movement. You can see it in the indignados in Spain. You can certainly see it here in Greece. And I think that institutions need to play a game of catch up. And I think the smarter amongst them are wanting to connect with me because they understand that I'm actually connecting exactly where they are disconnecting. Do you have an, you ass have an assignment for uh, the uh, the Greek diaspora, uh, those sitting on the sidelines saying, what can we do? How can we help? Yeah, you know, Richard, at this point in time, um, I've been pretty much focused on making sure that my message reaches the diaspora. 
that um, that they get it, that they understand where I'm coming from, that they can share my belief in a creative future for this country, because I feel that's the essential first step. And I've spent a lot of time connecting with uh, Greeks abroad. I'm in fact speaking at a conference in New York on the 29th of April, which is the National Innovation Conference being run by the Greek America Foundation. And my aim over there is again to connect. I have some ideas, some very specific ideas on how to integrate, um, you know, Greeks in North America back into Greece because I feel there's a very strong desire to connect. But as soon as the corruption and and the poor image gets in the way, you know, I I know what happens. A Greek abroad tends to turn his back on that stuff, and I don't want that to happen. Where do you see yourself in five years? Where is this this branding taking you? I don't know where I see myself because I've never been a person that's thought in those terms. Um, I tend to really get into what I'm doing now and just go for it because I really enjoy very much what I'm doing. But I do see Greece in five years from now. And I see a far more creative Greece. I see a Greece which perhaps is showing the way forward in terms of this broader disconnect that I've just referred to because I do think there's an opportunity for Greece to again show some kind of new road forward. I certainly can see Greece in five years' time. I'm not sure I can describe myself in five years' time, except that I'd love to be in Greece. <laughs> do, do you see, uh, again, uh, knowing you're not a, a political, but do you see Greece in the EU in five years? I think I do, Richard. Um, I think I do. In fact, I'm pretty certain that I do. And the reason why I say this is as follows. Um, Despite despite the noise that one hears, despite the the demonstrations and the riots and the the anti-European rhetoric, and indeed the anti-Greek rhetoric coming out of Europe, I feel that the majority of Greeks see their future inside Europe, and that's where it hinges. If Greeks see see their future inside Europe, that's where their future is going to be. If they see their future outside of Europe, that's where it's going to be. It goes down back again to 11 million individual Greeks. And I think the majority see their future inside Europe. Uh, looking back at, at uh, some of uh, Greece's uh, campaigns uh, for tourism, for example, uh, and you've, you've pointed this out again on your, on your lecture, in your lectures, uh, one, one of the most effective for me was, you know, uh, I'm going home or I'm coming home to Greece. And yet you had people like Peter Ustinov, you know, whose uh, parents were from uh, Russia, I believe, saying, you know, I'm, I'm, my father was Russian or my mother was Ukrainian, but I'm coming home to Greece. That was very effective. Why do you suppose it was? What, why did that work so well? I think that worked so well because it tapped into a basic, basic insight. Great work always taps into good insights, by the way, whatever kind of product you're talking about. And I think the insight that it plugged into was the fact that Greece, perhaps even just in the subconscious of many people, but Greece is seen as being um, a pretty significant contributor to what the world is today. And and this country is steeped in that. And what that tapped into, it tapped directly into that, but without screaming it out, because the concept of home, on the one hand, is welcoming, it's going back to the bosom, it's an embrace. And on the other side, it talks about the mother of civilization, but without being bombastic and arrogant about it. And I think that's exactly what it tapped into in a beautiful, beautiful way. It was a great campaign. Would you like to see them bring that back? 
I'd like to see that kind of sentiment coming back. In fact, I've done something which I, I knocked up last Saturday. I wasn't feeling too well. I was sitting at home and I knocked up a quick campaign where I said that this is a country called forever. And I wrote some very emotional copy, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's small copy. It's not big and bombastic and arrogant again. And it spoke about the comfort of home, because I think that Greece represents the comfort of home to so many people. What about Greece, Yes, We Can? Greece, Yes, We Can is, uh, <laughs> is, is, is Obama, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and you know, this whole sentiment that I put into the word yinete, yinete can be interpreted as being Yes, We Can, and some people have interpreted it that way. It's not the way I intended it. Greece yinete uh, is really a negation of the negativity. Forgive the double negative inside there. It, it's, it's a way of getting rid of this negative attitude in Greece of we can't do it. It can't be done. Okay. So it's really playing with that. Greece, yes, we can. Sure. I mean, that, that, you know, that's a wonderfully optimistic statement. But the word yinete plugs into something else. It plugs into this Greek negativity. Uh, finally, uh, Peter, what would you say uh, to, to people whose perception of Greece, the, the brand that they take away, has been, for the most part, shaped by programs like Go Greek for a Week? What I'd say is the following. Um, it doesn't surprise me in the least that the media should be riding with that particular aspect of Greece. And there's enough of that in Greece in order to make that a credible media story. But we also have to understand that that is an interesting media story. And, you know, I think we all know that the news machine is a very hungry machine. It's a voracious beast. It's got a huge appetite. And that's the kind of story that it really eats up. What I would say to people is that, yeah, sure, that exists, but that is not the stereotype of Greece. It's being portrayed as being the stereotype, but it's not. We, in fact, ran a campaign very recently. I don't know if you've been exposed to this, Richard. It's, it, it had a headline which said, give Greece a chance. And it spoke precisely about that. It spoke about the fact that that stereotype is not applicable to every Greek, and that there are, in fact, very hardworking, taxpaying, honest citizens in this country who really do desire a, a solid European future with a really good role to play in the world, and that these people deserve a chance to make it happen. Well, Peter, uh, I thank you for your time. There's, uh, quite frankly, a lot of riding on, <laughs> on you and your endeavors, so I wish you Godspeed, and um, uh, thanks again for, uh, for joining us here on The Conspiracy Show. Richard, this was a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Peter Economides, the man who some might suggest saved Apple, and now we all hope he can do the same for Greece. Uh, back next week uh, with Mac Maloney, UFOs at War, and of course uh, our good friend Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Service will sit in, and uh, much more coming uh, your way on the uh, very next episode of The Conspiracy Show. And uh, of course, uh, to all of you at home, uh, Happy Easter. Uh, to all of uh, my Greek uh, friends and family, Christos Anesti. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. 
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.